I'm, I guess, tagging you because, uh, and I'll let you introduce yourself in a second, but just to get right to it, I identify you as the leading expertise in, like, uh, just having a conversation around harm reduction and what that means. So if, I guess, you could go ahead when you're ready um, and, like, go off <laughs> more or less on, like, what is harm reduction and why is it in the context that we're we're in right now with um, historical trauma and unresolved grief and substance use disorder and COVID um, nonetheless, why is harm reduction a model that should be like the priority model? Or, or I guess, you know, why should it be really considered as opposed to adversarial um, models, if that makes sense? But go ahead, introduce yourself, and then take it away. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Dave Lucas, and I'm a social worker uh, with a background in addiction and mental health uh, treatment. Um, I've worked primarily with uh, folks involved in the criminal justice system in Canada and the U.S. Um, and uh, I've been a long-time advocate uh, for uh, the use of harm reduction uh, principles and uh, philosophy in uh, both in the community level and also in, in clinical and legal settings. Uh, and I think that has to do with um, the fact that I think what we've seen in, in the research is that uh, what works in terms of promoting healthy living and people um, making change at a pace that, that tends to work in the long term and, and uh, promote health in a way that is client-centered and, and more more likely to um, kind of withstand the pressures of um, other actors like uh, police and, and uh, other social forces. Um, I guess my the reason why harm reduction has a, a particular kind of relevance right now during COVID is because everybody is kind of doing harm reduction to, to an extent. Uh, quarantine, yeah. shelter in place, um, wearing masks, washing hands, um, you know, physical distancing, and also uh, providing additional social supports and resource supports for people who uh, might be going without at, the, at a time like this. All of these things are kind of examples of harm reduction, which are basically, um, you know, harm reduction is a huge kind of school of thought, and it has different aspects to it. Uh, you know, you could trace it back to the origins of, um, you know, fighting for medications during the the AIDS crisis um, and then you can also consider it access to uh, medications in the current opioid crisis and and as well as things like naloxone um, but it's also a fight for racial uh, justice it's a it's an anti-colonial movement it's an anti-racist movement um, that recognizes that a lot of folks have addiction and mental health issues as a result of historical traumas and legacies of, of uh, uh, racial violence um, and so it's it's kind of an all-encompassing approach to things that recognizes that we can't change things overnight. Um, the social forces that cause a lot of the harms uh, that people who use drugs um, face, it doesn't always have to do with the drugs they're using. It doesn't always have to do with um, the fact that they have a mental health condition. A, a lot of it has to do with what happens to them once uh, society recognizes that place that they have in um those challenges that they face and the fact that they're often reharmed by systems that are charged with uh, taking care of them. So uh, harm reduction is as a, as a, an approach and 
and a philosophy and kind of like a movement is partially trying to be a buffer towards uh, the systems that, that kind of reinforce and reproduce some of those harms that originally kind of caused or are underlying a lot of the addiction and mental health uh, issues that people face. Um, during COVID, um, it's particularly important uh, to think about harm reduction principles um, as opposed to say like forced abstinence because we have to be realistic here and we want everybody to be safe and taken care of. And when we do things like uh, restrict people's access to uh, substances that they've been using, say, on a daily basis, whether that's opiates, uh, opioids, or um, stimulants, or alcohol, there could be really, really uh, dangerous outcomes. So, for example, if somebody is a daily drinker, a heavy drinker, and they're suddenly cut off from alcohol, they could actually, they could actually die from withdrawal. Um, folks don't usually with, uh, die from withdrawal of opioids, but you can uh, go through extreme extreme pain and distress uh, to the point of, of, you know, where you could potentially be so dehydrated that you could die. It's, it's rare, but it's possible, but it's, it's something we certainly want to avoid. It uh, messes with people's tolerance. And then when they do eventually get access to opioids, again, their tolerance is all out of whack and there's a really high chance of overdose risk. So um, there's all kinds of kind of uh, precautions that we want to take when, when thinking about uh, people with addiction issues during COVID. Um, because everything, every risk that they face kind of normally, they're facing in an intensified way. So are they facing maybe potential eviction? Are they have, you know, do they have less access to um, food? Are they not able to, um, you know, pay for, they have, uh, they're not able to do their gig economy type jobs or their hustle, their side hustles to, to make ends meet. So suddenly that they're, they're without kind of those basic necessities. So they're facing a lot of social problems. In addition to that, they're going through all the um, physical and, and or physiological distress that comes with being in withdrawal or not being able to access their substances. Um, and then it gets just really dangerous. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's two approaches you can take. You can say, well, you know, that's uh, them's the breaks and that's what they uh, get for living a, a, a life on the margins like that. Or you can say, what can we do to support this, this population and keep them alive because right. uh, ultimately, ultimately, if we're, you know, trying to observe COVID directives, it's because we're trying to keep people alive, whether they use drugs or not, whether they have mental health issues or not. Um, we want to, we want everybody uh, to survive this thing together. So um, harm reduction in its most purest form is, is really about care and compassion and mutual support and non-judgment and meeting people where they are. And uh, that means that if somebody is using substances and we, during COVID decide that, wait a second, you know, we're not going to allow these people to have access to things. You know, we have to be prepared for the fact that that's going to have extremely, extremely, um, uh, it's going to have really dangerous uh, outcomes most likely. So we need to do some planning um, around uh, getting, making sure people have access to, to addiction and mental health care services, harm reduction services, so that they can do some planning um, and stay safe. Thank you for that. Do you have, um, do you mind sharing in the next minute or so uh, your experience working in Canada with First Nations and, well, I say First Nations, but if you happen to have clients who were First Nations, uh, I think this really is, for me, mind-blowing, just the level of um, I don't even know if the word is acceptance, but just awareness um, and implementation of 
of harm reduction uh, for substance users. And um, I know your your area is, or, or the area that you can speak to is, is opioids, uh, opioids, but in my community, it's, it's methamphetamines and alcoholism mm -hmm. uh, as the leading top two. Sure. I, I could be wrong, but if you could speak yeah. to your experience, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly not an expert in, in the, you know, um, in the best in, in, in developing or creating or delivering culturally uh, appropriate uh, responses for uh, Indigenous communities. But I certainly have worked with a lot of Indigenous people in my time, especially in Canada. I'm from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, so I've worked um, in the, um, you know, much maligned for good reason child welfare system here as a as a as a youngster just kind of entering the field and then i wow. uh, started working in the addiction and mental health field in toronto where i worked with a lot of street involved uh, people many of whom were uh, black or brown or indigenous and um you know and i've, and I've seen kind of all substances in winnipeg and um you know there's a lot of alcoholism and, and crack use and meth use and opioids and, and other kinds of painkillers certainly um, in Toronto, it's uh, very similar. You see pretty much all of the substances. Uh, the folks that I worked with, the Indigenous folks I, I mostly worked with, were using um, uh, crack cocaine and, um, and alcohol for the most part. That was very mm -hmm. common. Um, and, you know, my experience was, was that what, what worked, uh, or at least was a bit more effective in terms of like engaging uh, with that population and, and making sure that they stuck around and came back to to get more support was, um, you know, number one, seeing other people that looked like them in the services that they were accessing. So representation was important. Um, and then also just people who recognized kind of the, the historical legacies that, that you know, um, were underlying a lot of the things that they faced and why they were, um, you know, so so secluded and often isolated in big cities like Toronto. Um, in Winnipeg, our colonial legacy, I think, is a little bit more um, upfront. We 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 have a, a a large urban indigenous population, so people are a little bit more aware of kind of the this that kind of aspect of our of our history. Whereas in Toronto, it's it's so multicultural that sometimes that story gets a little bit um, sidelined, so um, you don't see it as much. But um, I, I did work at a at a at a hospital that had a, an Aboriginal program. We had um, a space where people could do smudges and sweats um, and a lot of our indigenous clients did find that um, to be uh, particularly helpful but my big takeaway was was basically uh, cultural practices uh, as much as it kind of is thrown thrown around like you know mm -hmm. almost as a, as a as a proxy for um, you know if you just throw people of the same culture in the same room it'll fix itself but and I don't think that's true, but but in the case of, of working with indigenous populations where they had indigenous leaders leading those therapeutic processes, it was uh, hugely significant for them. Um, and when, especially when they were um, able to kind of merge some of the more kind of Eurocentric approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing, and you kind of merged those with, with uh, practices that connected people to the land and, and other kind of practices. Um, so that I found that to be hugely significant um, in terms of retention and uh, kind of more long-term success. But ultimately, what was the biggest challenge for this community was, you know, what happened when treatment ended. Um, they still go back into a into a society that that does not um, that is still very 
white dominated, um, at least in the, those in the two cities I've lived in. So um, a big part, a big focus for us was to try to make sure aftercare and um, linking them with other kind of uh, culturally appropriate services for when treatment was over was really, really important because, um, you know, it's very easy to, you know, they, as they say, you'll, you'll, it's easy to forget a language when you don't use it. And I think that yeah. goes, that goes for a lot of other types of uh, ways of knowing uh, and moving through the world. So um, that, that was something that I learned. But uh, one thing I learned also from working with that population was how severe alcohol withdrawal uh, can be. And that was something that I wasn't aware of because I was more familiar with working in the, in the, with illegal drugs. So mm -hmm. when I had clients who were going through alcohol withdrawal and, and just how painful and how scary and dangerous it was. Um, and so I found that uh, it was really helpful when they were able to incorporate harm reduction practices like uh, managed withdrawal or, yeah. you know, just setting, setting go goals around, uh, you know, reduction of use. Um, and setting limits and having people to um, kind of be accountable with so that, you know, if alcohol was kind of inevitable, it wasn't going to always be an ex excess and that there were safety plans. People weren't necessarily going home alone in case they, you know, had maybe used substances along with the alcohol, when, which makes the overdose risk very high. So this is, a, this is kind of where the harm reduction comes back in. You know, not everybody's ready to quit drinking, but they know that they have to do something or else they're going to die from it. So this is where harm reduction is so useful because it kind of says to the person, okay, you know, you, you decide what, what works for you, what's realistic, what will be helpful and what feels safe. And, and I'll help you try to strategize around that. So let's set some drinking goals for the week. Um, you know, tell me what you're usually drinking um, when you usually get in trouble in terms of, you know, hangovers and feeling sick or spending money or getting into fights or whatever. Um, Kind of goals for this week and, and we'll come back and reflect on how those went and, and strategize about what would help meeting those and and it's you know it's a really um straightforward non-judgmental conversation in fact i think once we untrain ourselves from imposing our own kind of goals on people it actually becomes the easier conversation to have it feels really natural because it almost just feels like you're talking it's one human to another who really just cares about that person um getting through the day and uh you know, and not, and not feeling judged. If if you walk into an office and somebody looks down their nose at you and tells you that you need to stop or they're not going to help you, well, that's not going to obviously do anything that's that's going to push that person away. So um, we want to do the things yeah. that that make people feel accepted and and uh, and make them feel like that if they fail and they don't meet their their own kind of goal, that they can come back and there won't be judgment and they can start start again. You know, so Absolutely. but the key is like key, the key is how do you get them back and 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 mm -hmm. that comes from um, you know, fundamental non-judgment and, and, and planning, I know, planning into and planning. the, into the, yes, into the, look, you're going to stumble. We all stumble when we're kids, when we're babies, we stumble, we get it. It's part of learning how to walk. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, that like, when yeah, they, recurrence of use yeah, or relapse. Yes. Um, relapse. Yeah, uh, I hate that word, yeah. but yes. I do too. Yeah. I, I prefer recurrence of use or return to use, but, but yeah, it's going to, it's inevitable. And that's, and you know a big part of it is is looking at um, somebody's return to use and, and not condemning it to good or bad, you know, because mm -hmm. even if they don't drink, that's not necessarily good because, you know, maybe maybe something still was really challenging for them. You know, so the point is like 
using is not inherently good or bad. It's it's a it's basically what is your what is that person's relationship to that substance and what is the impact it's having on their life. And we can't if we get stuck in these black and white binary kind of understandings of use. We can't plan. We don't learn anything from it, right? If somebody yeah. says, you know, I I messed up. I drank over the weekend. I'm so stupid, and I I I I, I want to oh. stop, but I'm I'm too weak to do it. Well, you don't learn anything from that, right? You don't, you don't, that's a conversation blocker. And if you, if somebody, for example, gets through the weekend and doesn't drink and you say, you know what, you're awesome. You're so strong. I knew you could do it. That's also a conversation blocker. You still don't learn anything, right? So we need to just kind of always get in the habit of like figuring out what worked, what didn't, what could be done differently. Um, How do you feel about the goal that we set? Was it too, was it too much pressure? Um, Was it, you know, do you want to kind of, push yourself a bit more this week, you know, it's, it's, it's about kind of those little gradations as opposed to these kind of big overwhelming steps that put so much pressure on people who already, you know, are feeling it, you know, it's very rare to meet people with, with addiction issues who don't already beat themselves up on the regular and, and don't be fooled by the, you know, the facade or the machismo of like, you know, the kind of the tough guy persona, those those people beat Mm -hmm. themselves up and, and it takes one or two conversations between their, their, before their, you know, tearing themselves down for all their mistakes. So That's we don't right. need to, we don't need to pile on to that, you know? Right. Well, on that note, what is your response if, if say a country, a sovereign country, I'm not talking about uh, North Korea, but um, what would you say to some country that, you know, took it upon itself um, to impose fees and fines on said recovering person, healing person, person who's in healing uh thousands of dollars um beyond their yearly annual income like what would you say to that in terms of harm reduction and everything you've been mentioning it i guess is in the stark contrast what what is your response yeah i mean i i think realistically you know sometimes really strict punitive um sanctions hanging over our heads works right like if somebody said hey if you eat that ice cream cone I'm going to punch you in the face and you know what I want that ice cream cone but I'm probably not going to eat it so in the short term it would be effective but ultimately right. that is incent- when that guy's not there to punch me in the face and then it's that that's uh you know that stick is out of the out of my view is that going to really change my desire for that ice cream it's not and and so that's you know there's all kinds of external motivators that we can use to try to change people's behavior but they only work when they're matched with internal motivators and 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 the supports that reduce the desire and demand for substances. And if we're, you know, the thing is, somebody who's addicted to alcohol or opioids, I mean, look at the laws in the U.S. There's extremely punitive. Has that done anything? It's never stopped anybody. It's all it's ever done is made it harder and harder for people to get help. And it's made it hard. And it means that people use alone. They use in secret. They use in the shadows. And that's why they overdose. That's why they die alone. And that's why they don't call the police when they could to get help or an ambulance, you know, because they're scared right. of the fines. They're scared of getting arrested. And so what you're doing is you're basically saying, we're not interested in supporting you. We're just going to tell you what we want you to do. And it's up to you to figure out how to how to do that. Now, that's fine if it worked, but it doesn't. So it's actually really lazy and short-sighted, to be honest. And I know that sounds kind of critical, but it's... we. We mm-hmm. all we have, all we have is evidence that those types of tactics don't work. There's no country that has yeah. come down hard on drug users and it's worked to reduce the harms associated with drug use. The, only yeah. the countries 
only the countries that have shifted their support towards health systems, things like housing, diversion programs, getting people kind of like vocational support. Those are the only countries that have ever had any success reducing those harms, like disease transmission, overdose, um, injection use, homelessness. So, you know, you can, it's, it's, it all comes down to what playbook do you want to use? Do you want just the appearance of making it look like you care, or do you want to actually have, have an effective system that, that actually responds to the needs of your people? You know, because this Absolutely. is, that's, that's the Eurocentric, very kind of punishment oriented approach that, that is basically the, you know, if we look through history, why has that existed? It's only ever existed to control black and brown bodies, right? Mm. And, 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 and Asian bodies in Canada with the, with the opium dens and trying to, you know, yes. keep, keep, uh, you know, Chinese immigrants away from white women. So if we want, if we want evidence that that's not the system to impose what, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to control a particular segment because we don't like them? Or do we actually want to fix the underlying problems? But, but harsh punishments in this drug policy space is just a, it's just an extension of that, of that legacy. And it's not going to work. So, um, you know, it's going to scare a few people, but it's not going to stop them from using. That's the sad thing. They'll just do it in secret. And then they, you know, living in the shadows even more. Right. Not to mention, not to mention if you have, you know, like you mentioned earlier, mental health, you know, depression, anxiety, um, suicidal ideation, that, that's running rampant in my community. And so oh, sure. I guess to, to spin it into what my elder says, um, planting seeds rather than, um, you know, looking at the devastation of colonization's mess, but really to plant seeds is yeah. to really recognize or take the time for yourself to um you know, tend to your own garden, whatever that may be, whatever healing that may be. And it might be with a six pack, without a six pack. The point is that you are staying connected and that you are, um, know, like, you know that you're wanted and that you know you have a responsibility. And that's very, um, that's a very strong Apache ethic. And I think that that's um, powerful across a lot of Native communities. I can't speak for all of them, but I think that, like, this, I, this, this ethic around original instructions and, and everyone mm-hmm. having responsibility and everyone mm-hmm. coming and, and part of your responsibility is to heal. That is part of your responsibility yeah. is to heal because we need you. We need everyone on the front lines with COVID. This is not the first time there's going to be more COVID. We have to prepare now. We have to look yeah. out for everyone. So anyway, last, last, uh, last 30 second um, takeaway thoughts or, just um, mm-hmm. what do you want people to know about, um, I guess, yeah, what, what would you like people to know? Well, I think, I think you really uh, framed it beautifully by saying that, you know, people who feel uh, cared for, cared for will, will care for themselves as well, and, and, and they will see that as a responsibility. And if you give them responsibility within, you know, some kind of system of care, they will, they will take that up, and they'll probably be uh, one of your best workers because they understand both sides, right? They value yeah. it in themselves and they and they can see the pain that the other person is dealing with. So, you know, we're wasting we're wasting a huge resource by by shunting uh, these folks to the side. Um, and yeah. I think I, I like the, the framing of responsibility there. Not so much a pull yourself up by the bootstraps, Mm-mm. but give people give people things to do that mean something. Um, and when people feel useful and helpful and supportive of others, they have a reason to take care of themselves because sometimes it's easier to care for others before you, you care for yourself, but slowly that shifts and you yeah. see that 
the better, you know, the stronger you are yourself, the more you can help others. And, and, yeah. and that kind of like, that's the echo chamber that you really want. And, um, and I think that comes from top down. That's often, you see that in leadership, you see leadership that listens to everybody and cares for everybody. And then, and you try to, um, and we're seeing this in the U S right. This approach, you, you don't see care and right. compassion at the top. And that's why you see it just kind of everywhere you look. So, I think that would be the final takeaway is, is however you, re, however you respond to uh, the situation in your community um, around COVID, it's got to be collective and it's got to be rooted in compassion and non-judgment um, or you're just going to lose people and you're going to undermine the whole, all of the work that you're doing. Right. Absolutely. Well said. And that's a missed opportunity we cannot afford. So thank you so much for yeah. that. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. No problem. Anytime. Noel. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk soon. Appreciate okay, you. All right. All right, later. Yeah.